Hey folks, just wanted to do a quick little intro before I start the episode. Um, sorry for missing uh, the episode last week. Meant to upload it and then had a bunch of technical difficulties and then combined that with a bunch of other uh, recording problems that I was having. But uh, from here on out, I'll try to get back on that once a week pace. But if I'm unable to, definitely uh, try to give you a heads up in advance. Also, if you'll recall in the last episode, uh, the in my outro I mentioned that in this week's episode, we were going to talk about two battles. Well, we actually don't talk about any battles. Uh, I kind of <laughs> kind of got carried away talking about cavalry. You know, you just get me started b- talking about cavalry, and, and, and I just can't stop. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this, this week's episode is going to focus mainly on the cavalry and the opening moves of the Gettysburg campaign, and then next week we'll get into Brandy Station, and then probably the week after that will be the second battle of Winchester. All right, let's start the episode. So in the last couple of episodes, we've covered a lot of stuff, mostly context to set up for the Gettysburg Campaign. Both the Federal Army of the Potomac and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia clashed at a tiny crossroads called Chancellorsville in the wilderness of Virginia, a significant but costly Confederate victory. Ultimately, it was Confederate General Robert E. Lee who took the initiative by planning an offensive operation in which the Rebel Army would march north into Maryland and Pennsylvania. After nearly a month, the Army of Northern Virginia was in fighting shape and gearing up to move out of its position along the Rappahannock in and around Fredericksburg, Virginia. Though General Lee hoped to acquire more troops, he felt that time was running out. Rumors were swirling on both sides of the river. Spies operated behind enemy lines, gathering intelligence. Deserters fed information, true and false, when captured by the enemy. Newspapers reported stories gathered from sources, reliable or not, and both the Union and Confederate leaders read each other's newspapers for anything of use. And though a fairly tight lid had been kept on the exact Confederate invasion plan, there was a strong belief that something was about to occur. On May 27th, Colonel George H. Sharp, head of the Army of the Potomac's Bureau of Military Information, reported to General Joseph Hooker that something major was underway. There were two likely scenarios. Either General Jeb Stuart was about to lead a cavalry raid, or Lee was planning an entirely new campaign. Sharp leaned toward the latter as more intelligence came in. His information turned out to be remarkably accurate, but Hooker was skeptical at first, though he did begin to issue orders to his generals to get ready for possible action. In early June, Lee received news that federal forces withdrew from West Point, Virginia and were heading away from Richmond. And confusingly, I'm not talking about West Point, the military academy, I'm talking about West Point, Virginia, which is a small town about 35 miles east of Richmond. This was all Lee needed to hear to begin his Pennsylvania operation. On June 3rd, the divisions of General Lafayette McClaws and John Bell Hood left their defensive positions on the Rapidan River and marched toward Culpeper Courthouse, about 30 miles northwest. The next day, they were followed by General Robert Rhodes' division and then the rest of Ewell's Corps on June 5th. By June 6, all of the 2nd Corps and all but General Pickett's division of the 1st Corps were in the vicinity of Culpeper. As the Army of Northern Virginia began to withdraw, General Hooker struggled to interpret the meaning of what was happening, but by June 4th was aware that Lee's army was on the move. The following day, Hooker began to take some action as he now believed the Rebel Army was going to essentially replicate what he'd done about a month prior at Chancellorsville. 
First, they'd move northwest, out of reach of his own army, then cross the river and cut the Federals off from Washington. On June 5th and 6th, a small force of soldiers from General Sedgwick's 6th Corps was ordered to cross the Rappahannock and approach General A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps, still entrenched around Fredericksburg. In addition to the infantry, a fierce artillery barrage caused Lee to temporarily halt Ewell's column, in case the Army of the Potomac was seriously going to attack. But Sedgwick's move against Hill's troops was just a demonstration, and soon they withdrew across the river. Hooker expressed to President Lincoln that if Lee was attempting to turn his army, he believed the best course of action would be to attempt to seize Richmond. He asked the president if that was in accordance with the orders that had been given to him by General Henry Halleck, to which Lincoln responded negatively. Hooker basically had two objectives, protect Washington and stay in touch with the Army of Northern Virginia. The Richmond was a vital city for the Confederates, it was the army that was the real target. In effect, the Army of Northern Virginia was the Confederacy. If it was destroyed, the Confederate States of America would be destroyed with it. Lincoln's strategy was mostly sound, but in this instance, Hooker was probably right. It's debatable whether he would have been able to capture Richmond before Lee's army could come back, but Confederate President Jefferson Davis's ultimate concern was the safety of the capital. If the Federals made a move on Richmond, Lee would have been forced to turn his soldiers around and defend the city, perhaps ending his Pennsylvania operation altogether. But, with a swift move on Richmond off the table, Hooker ordered his cavalry commander, Brigadier General Alfred Pleasanton, to perform reconnaissance along the north side of the Rappahannock. This is a good time to talk about cavalry in the Civil War, since we went over infantry and artillery in the last couple of episodes. Prior to the advent of firearms, cavalry dominated warfare. How do you make a man with a weapon taller, faster, and stronger? Put him on a horse. Even as our combat supremacy began to decline in the centuries before the Civil War, they still played a significant role. Cavalry can be broken down into two basic classes, heavy and light cavalry. Heavy cavalry acted as the shock troops for the army. The heavy cavalry of the late 18th and early 19th century were kind of like the knights of the Middle Ages, just adjusted for modern combat. They still often wore armor and carried melee weapons like swords, pikes, and lances, though in the 19th century and the Napoleonic era, they probably would also carry pistols. Both the horses and the riders were usually required to be larger than average. During a battle, they were usually held in reserve until the moment that the enemy army began to waver, and then they'd be sent in to break the line. There was basically no heavy cavalry in the American Civil War. I mean, pretty much by that point, the 1860s, they were completely obsolete, and they had really served no function in the U.S. Army in the antebellum era, but some European armies would continue to use them for a few decades afterward. The other class, light cavalry, was primarily used to protect the flanks from enemy cavalry, harass a retreating opponent, and perform reconnaissance and scouting missions. Unlike the heavy cavalry, they were usually not armored and carried lighter weapons, usually sabers, pistols, or carbines, which were shorter muskets. However, there were some well-known light cavalry units of the Napoleonic era that carried lances, like the Uhlans, or the Polish Lancers. Also, if you're familiar with a hussar jacket, that was a famous uniform worn by a type of light cavalry called the hussars that originated in Central Europe. I should also mention that there's another kind of hybrid class of cavalry called mounted infantry. Sometimes they're classified as cavalry, sometimes as infantry, and I'll kind of get into why. Unlike heavy and light cavalry, mounted infantry were not meant to fight on horseback, but instead would ride to a part of the battlefield, dismount, and fight on foot. At one point, a common name for mounted infantry was dragoons, which derived from a French word for the weapons they carried. 
Over time, the French Dragoons stopped acting like mounted infantry and used more traditional cavalry tactics, but sometimes in literature you'll see the term Dragoons used as a stand-in for mounted infantry, and in the pre-war army, a lot of U.S. Army regiments were referred to as Dragoons. Americans never really liked the European model of cavalry, largely because the wars the United States was fighting were not against other so-called great powers, but instead against various Indian groups. Cavalry units occupied outposts on the frontier and fought counterinsurgency wars against the Comanche, Apache, Seminole, Navajo, and many other indigenous peoples. But there were no grand cavalry charges in Texas or the New Mexico Territory. Dismounted fighting with rifles or carbines was preferable. But with the Civil War came good old-fashioned European-style linear combat, and cavalry would have an expanded role. The historian Edward Longacre listed seven major functions that cavalry served in the Civil War. The first was fighting in conjunction with the infantry and artillery, either mounted or on foot, and they would do this on occasion. The second was reconnaissance. Cavalry was often described as the eyes and ears of the army. Because of their superior mobility and speed, they were able to locate the enemy and quickly report it to the commanding general. The third was counter-reconnaissance, and this is basically the inverse of the second one. The cavalry was also used to prevent enemy troopers from acquiring accurate information about the rest of the army. When an army was standing still, they would protect the flanks from the enemy cavalry. When an army was on the move, they would form a screen in the front, flanks, and rear. This was helpful so the main body of infantry wouldn't just blunder into an enemy force unprepared, and it kept your own army's position and status a secret from the enemy. The fourth was finding delaying actions against enemy infantry or cavalry. This might either be done to hold a position until the main body of infantry could arrive, or give the infantry, artillery, and supply train enough time to escape to a better position. The fifth was pursuing and harassing a defeated enemy. Historically, this was how armies were annihilated. When the army was broken by the infantry, the cavalry would swoop in to prevent them from reforming or counterattacking. The sixth was making raids on enemy positions and supplies. This was usually performed behind enemy lines, and these raids would consist of things like capturing supplies from depots and wagon trains, tearing up railroads and telegraph wires, and burning bridges. Anything to disrupt the flow of supplies and communication and deprive the enemy of much-needed materiel. Lastly, cavalry also served in a multitude of non-combat roles like guarding supplies, serving as escorts for high-ranking officers, acting as messengers, and garrisoning outposts. In the first half of the war, Confederate cavalry had a decided advantage over the Federal cavalry. There were a few factors that played into this. One was the material need for horseback riding due to the poor quality of roads and the lack of extensive rail lines in the South. If you were trying to travel from town to town, you were likely going to have to do it on horseback. Another big reason was the substantial horse culture of the South. Horse racing was the most popular sport in the mid-19th century in all regions of the country, but particularly in the southern states. Many plantation owners also bred and sold horses. Because plantation labor was a force system that used enslaved black people, cotton and sugar planters were afforded a great deal of leisure time. Much of that time that wasn't spent getting drunk on juleps was spent on horseback, either riding, racing, or hunting. There were also many traditions of the South that involved riding horses. Virtually all of the southern aristocracy traced its roots back to England or Scotland, and they considered themselves to be descendants, both literally and culturally, of the Cavaliers. Cavalier was the moniker applied to the Royalist supporters of King Charles I and II during the English Civil War and Revolution. 
the term derived from the Latin word for horseman. Originally, the parliamentarians used cavalier as an insult, but the royalists eventually came to use it as a badge of honor, or a term of endearment. These were the men who led the royalist armies on horseback against the roundheads, which was the nickname given to the parliamentarians by those cavaliers. Many of these English noblemen were given land grants in Virginia as gifts for their support of the king. We talked a little in the Jamestown episode about how many of the original colonists there were gentlemen. The early plantations of Tidewater, Virginia, and the Piedmont were dominated by the younger sons of the English gentry. Some royalist supporters fled to the English colonies in North America when the monarchy was temporarily abolished, and then again after the Glorious Revolution that brought William and Mary into power. Citizen militias were also a huge part of antebellum white southern culture. The militias were led and organized by the wealthier landowners in the community, and a big reason for their existence was to prevent slave uprisings that weren't uncommon. Many of these militias were mounted units. One of the best analyses of rebel horsemen came from a British observer, Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Jail Fremantle. Fremantle was a British army officer, many of whom took interest in the ongoing conflict that their American cousins were engaged in across the pond. He took a leave of absence from the army to tour the Confederate States of America and check out the various rebel armies. After he returned, he wrote and published an account of his travels called Three Months in the Southern States. He had several observations on rebel cavalry that I'm going to read here. The first two came from his time with General Bragg's Army of Tennessee. Quote, Colonel Grenfell explained to me the method of fighting adopted by the Western Cavalry, which he said was admirably adapted for this country, but he denied that they could, under any circumstances, stand a fair charge of regular cavalry in the open. Their system is to dismount and leave their horses in some secure place. One man is placed in charge of his own and three other horses, whilst the remainder acts as infantry skirmishers in the dense wood and broken country, making a tremendous row and deceiving the enemy as to their numbers and as to their character as infantry or cavalry, unquote. He later went on to say, quote, The way in which the horses were managed was very pretty and seemed to answer admirably for this sort of skirmishing. They were never far from the men who could mount and be off to another part of the field with rapidity, or retire to take up another position, or act as cavalry as the case might require." Unquote. This last quote was written during his time with the Army of Northern Virginia in June of 1863. Quote, I remarked that it would be a good thing for them if on this occasion they had cavalry to follow up the broken infantry in the event of their succeeding in beating them. But to my surprise, they all spoke of the cavalry as not efficient for that purpose. In fact, Stuart's men, though excellent at making raids, capturing wagons and stores, and cutting off communications, seemed to have no idea of charging infantry under any circumstances. Unlike the cavalry with Bragg's army, they wore swords, but seemed to have little idea of using them. They hanker after their carbines and revolvers. They consistently ride with their swords between their left leg and the saddle, which has a very funny appearance, but their horses are generally good and they ride well. The infantry and artillery of this army don't seem to respect the cavalry very much and often jeer at them." Unquote. I think those passages explain a lot about Confederate cavalry. They basically functioned as light cavalry or mounted infantry depending on whatever the situation called for. Like the rebel infantry, the troopers were a motley bunch, perhaps even more so as they didn't all carry the same type of weapon. Especially early in the war, the Confederate horse soldiers carried an assortment of weapons that included shotguns, carbines, sabers, bowie knives, and even muskets, which were incredibly unwieldy for a horseman. But their favorite weapon was the revolver. Cavalry of the Army of Northern Virginia preferred fighting up close and personal, which the revolving pistol was suited for. The Confederate cavalry typically was made up of wealthier men than the other branches of service for a few reasons. One goes back to the cultural importance of horsemanship amongst the southern gentry that I talked about before. 
It was also seen as the easiest of the three army branches. As Fremantle mentioned, the rebel troopers were often disrespected by infantry and artillerymen. The belief amongst most Confederate soldiers was that the cavalry were dandies and didn't do any real fighting. They couldn't stand up in a battle against infantry, and most of their time was spent riding around, making a fuss, and garnering newspaper headlines, but not actually contributing to the fortunes of the army. Another important thing to mention was that the Confederate troopers were required to furnish their own horses and maintain them, so this usually excluded poor white southerners. If a trooper's horse were killed in combat or died from exhaustion, he was expected to replace it with a new mount. If he failed to do so within a reasonable amount of time, he'd be forced to transfer to another branch of service, likely the infantry. At the head of the Confederate cavalry was the 30-year-old Major General James Ewell Brown Stewart, better known as Jeb. Jeb Stewart exemplified the model of the chivalric cavalier officer more than just about anyone in the entire Confederacy, maybe even the entire continent of North America. Some compared him to the famed cavalry commander of the Royalist Cavaliers, Prince Rupert of the Rhine. He even shared the same surname with the royal family, the House of Stuart, whom the Cavaliers swore to protect during the English Civil War. Jeb Stuart grew up in southwestern Virginia, the son of Archibald Stuart, a slave-owning planter and politician, who served one term as a representative in Congress. The younger Stuart entered West Point in 1850, where he did well academically and finished 13th in the class of 1854. While there, he became close with the family of the superintendent of West Point, Robert E. Lee. After Stuart graduated, he was commissioned as a cavalry officer. In 1855, he married Flora Cook. She was the daughter of Lieutenant Colonel Philip St. George Cook, who was a U.S. Army cavalry officer that commanded the 2nd Dragoon Regiment during the mid to late 1850s. He was also a notable military theorist, having written an instructional manual that was usually referred to as Cook's Cavalry Tactics, and it was published in 1862, and it was widely read within the Cavalry Corps, but it wasn't adopted officially by the Army as part of their doctrine. Nevertheless, Stuart had quite a legacy to live up to. Stuart's antebellum Army career was mostly spent at Fort Leavenworth during the Bleeding Kansas Crisis, where he served as a quartermaster officer. In 1859, he happened to be in Washington, D.C. when news of John Brown's raid on Harpers Ferry reached the capital. He volunteered to serve as Lieutenant Colonel Robert E. Lee's aide-de-camp in the expedition that was sent to suppress the insurrection. It was Lieutenant Stewart who was sent to the engine house, where Brown and his compatriots made their last stand, to offer Brown the option to surrender peacefully. The abolitionist had been using a pseudonym during the raid, but Stewart claimed that he recognized old Osawatomie Brown from his days in Kansas. When Brown refused to surrender, Stuart gave the signal for the Marines to storm the engine house. Stuart was promoted to captain just barely a week after the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter, but resigned his commission a couple weeks later. The secession crisis was one that split his extended family apart. His father-in-law, Colonel Cook, was a Virginian like Stuart, but he stayed loyal to the Union and served as a cavalry commander early in the war. However, his brother-in-law, John Rogers Cook, sided with the Confederacy and rose to the rank of Brigadier General in the infantry. The breakup of the family was so severe that Jeb and Flora Stewart changed the name of their son from Philip St. George Cook Stewart to James Ewell Brown Stewart Jr. Jeb Stewart was made an officer in the Virginia State Forces and eventually organized the 1st Virginia Cavalry Regiment that was assigned to the Army of the Shenandoah. It was made up of members of the elite planter class of Tidewater, Virginia. He led the 1st Virginia at the First Battle of Bull Run and was promoted to brigade command shortly after. Then Army Commander General Joseph Johnston wrote in a letter to President Davis that Stuart, quote, is a rare man, wonderfully endowed by nature with the qualities necessary for an officer of light cavalry, calm, firm, acute, active, and enterprising. 
I know no one more competent than he to estimate the occurrences before him at their true value. If you add to this army a real brigade of cavalry, you can find no better brigadier general to command it." Unquote. It was during the Peninsula Campaign that Stuart first garnered attention from the press and public. He was ordered by General Lee to scout the flank of the Army of the Potomac, which led him on a circuitous ride around the entire Federal Army. Though nothing strategically important was gained from this move, it was highly embarrassing for the Army of the Potomac. The Federal Cavalry had been unable to prevent Stuart from roaming unmolested through the rear of their army, while Confederate troopers captured hundreds of Union soldiers, horses, and supplies. To add to this humiliation, it was his father-in-law, General Cook, who took the blame as he was the commander of the Cavalry Reserve Division. Not long after, Cook resigned his position and spent the rest of the war performing administrative duties. You see that, fellas? If you're intimidated by your father-in-law, you just have to find the thing that he's best at and then do it so much better than him that the New York Times writes an article about it. He was promoted to Major General and given command of a division just before the Second Battle of Bull Run. Following the Confederate victory there, Stuart repeated his circumnavigation around the entire Army of the Potomac during the Maryland Campaign. This time, he led a raid on Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, and captured valuable supplies along the way. Federal cavalry once again failed to stop him or even force him to fight a significant battle. At this time, Stuart was one of the most famous men in all of the Confederacy. Only Jackson and Lee could truly be said to have been on the same level of notoriety. Though his actions weren't nearly as significant to the success of the Army of Northern Virginia as those two generals, Stuart was the one that garnered the most headlines. The press loved his daring antics as the public clamored for news about his exploits. Stuart certainly played the part of the Cavalier. His outfit included a hat that was adorned with a black ostrich feather and a gold star, a scarlet-lined cape draped over his uniform, flowers and ribbons tied to his lapels, elbow-length white buckskin gauntlets, a yellow sash around his belt, and golden spurs. And he rarely traveled without a band accompanying him. Hey, Sylvia, look at Jerry here, prancing around in his coat with his purse. <laughs> <laughs> yep, he's a dandy. He's a real fancy boy. <laughs> Years earlier, he wasn't known to be a very handsome man, mostly because he had no chin, but when he graduated from West Point, he grew a large, full, cinnamon-colored beard, which at least one person remarked that it would greatly improve his appearance. Wherever he would travel throughout rebel-friendly territory, the ladies would swoon as old Jeb rode by. His nickname in his West Point days was Beauty, but during the war, he was called both the Knight of the Golden Spurs and Beau Sabreur, which in French means the handsome swordsman. One thing I'll mention, though, is that Stuart was not without critics. There were plenty of people in the South that found his flamboyance less than endearing and more annoying. His attention-seeking behavior was borderline reckless, if not careless. During the Northern Virginia Campaign of 1862, Stuart was caught off guard when Federal cavalry surprised him with a raid early one morning that nearly succeeded in capturing him. They did manage to bag his prized ostrich-plumed hat, but Stuart was so angered by this that he led a counter-raid in which his troopers captured valuable information and supplies, including the uniform of Major General John Pope, commander of the Federal Army of Virginia. In spite of his flaws, Stuart was probably the best cavalry commander in the war at this time. Only Nathan Bedford Forrest could be said to rival him. In addition to his successful raids, he was adept as a tactical commander. He had an eye for good ground and was more than capable as a combat leader. Stuart was known to lead from the front, which was seen as an important quality for a horseman, even more so than infantry officers. This was from the Army Navy Journal, quote, The nature of cavalry service makes their presence a necessity, as in all formations for attack they lead their columns. 
They are supposed to possess those rare personal qualities that impart invincibility to the squadrons they lead and magnetize with individual daring each trooper." Unquote. After both Stonewall Jackson and General A.P. Hill were wounded at Chancellorsville, Stuart was actually temporarily placed in command of the entire Second Corps of Infantry, which he adequately led in attacks against the Army of the Potomac until it retreated on May 6th. Stuart's division of cavalry had fluctuated in strength for the last year or so. At Chancellorsville, he had two brigades of cavalry and one battalion of horse artillery. In the aftermath of that battle, Lee tried to secure as many reinforcements as he could find, and Stuart's command was enlarged to six brigades. The most senior of his brigade commanders, and arguably the best, was Brigadier General Wade Hampton III. Hampton was from Charleston, South Carolina, the heart of secession, and grew up in one of the wealthiest, slave-owning, cotton-planting families in not only South Carolina, but the entire South. His grandfather had served two terms in Congress and served as an officer in the American War of Independence and War of 1812. Hampton III had no military background, but with his own money he recruited and supplied a legion that participated in the First Battle of Bull Run. A legion was a feature of the early part of the Civil War, mostly on the Confederate side, and they were usually the product of wealthy landowners that weren't professional officers. Basically, it was a unit that included a battalion of each branch of the army. Infantry, cavalry, and artillery all rolled into one command. Legions went away quickly, and most of Hampton's legion was integrated into the rest of the army, but Hampton proved himself to be a more than capable combat commander. Like most cavalry officers, he was known to lead from the front and was wounded numerous times throughout the duration of the war. When General Lee reorganized the cavalry into one division under the command of General Stuart, Hampton was chosen to lead one of his brigades. Hampton and Stuart's relationship at best could be described as cordial and professional, but in private, Hampton brooded that Stuart was chosen because he was a Virginian and a close friend of General Lee. Factionalism was always a kind of latent problem that plagued the Army of Northern Virginia. It wasn't quite as severe as it was in other Confederate armies like the Army of Tennessee, but it was beneath the surface. The only reason it wasn't a major problem was that the Army had been so successful through the first two years of the war. Kind of like the 96 Chicago Bulls. Everybody hated playing with a psychopath like Michael Jordan, but it's hard to be upset when you're doing well. Winning smooths over everything. When people see this, uh, they're going to say, well, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. Oh, well, that's you. Because you never wanted anything. Still, there was a pretty wide belief within the army that Virginians dominated it. In June of 1863, the army was commanded by a Virginian, two of the three corps commanders were Virginians, five of the nine infantry division commanders were Virginians, and of course, Stuart as the cavalry division commander was a Virginian as well. This problem was especially true of the cavalry division, where 16 regiments or battalions were made up of Virginia troopers, as opposed to 10 that were made up of men from North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Mississippi so it seems that Hampton's beef was not unfounded. I also have to mention that while researching this episode, I came across a movie that was released this year about Wade Hampton called Hampton's Legion, and my god, I don't mean this hyperbolically, it was probably the worst movie that I've ever seen. I wasn't really sure what I expected when I went in, but I didn't expect something quite that bad. I'm talking about something so terrible that it makes something like The Room seem like a masterpiece of an auteur. And I used to be a real connoisseur of low-budget amateur films, and this was something special. Hampton's Legion feels like it was made by aliens that had never heard of Wade Hampton before, had never seen a movie before, maybe had never even had a conversation with another human being before. Everything about it was awful. The script, cinematography, acting, it's only like 80 minutes long, but felt so much longer because of the glacially slow pacing. About halfway through, I thought about bailing, but I just couldn't look away from all the awkward, wooden delivery of the most inane lines ever written. 
I don't want to spend too much more time talking about it, but this movie scarred me, and I had to tell somebody about it. Anyway, the other two brigades that Stewart had commanded most recently were led by Brigadier Generals Fitzhugh Lee and William Henry Fitzhugh Lee. The former was a nephew of the Army commander and a West Point classmate of Stewart's, though he was a couple of years younger. The latter was the son of the Army commander. He was known as Rooney by his close friends and family. The nickname had been given to him by his father for unknown reasons, but historians preferred to call him that as a way to differentiate him from his cousin because Fitzhugh was part of both of their names. Rooney Lee was not a West Pointer, but instead studied at Harvard, though he did enter the army after he graduated. Neither Lee was a particularly brilliant strategist, but both were seen as very good tactical commanders. The other three brigades that were attached to Stewart's division had been pulled from a few other places. Probably the best of them was a brigade from the Shenandoah Valley commanded by Brigadier General William Edmondson Jones, better known by his nickname, Grumble. Grumble Jones was a 39-year-old retired U.S. Army officer who had been in the Confederate cavalry since the outset of the war. Initially, he served under Stuart. He was known for being an excellent outpost officer and was skilled at leading raids and reconnaissance missions, but as his nickname suggests, wasn't the most likable figure. There are several photos of Jones, and he looks pissed in every single one. He especially didn't get along well with Stuart, which was in part a reason why his brigade had been stationed in the Shenandoah Valley for the last few months. The next brigade came from the western part of Virginia and was led by Brigadier General Albert Jenkins. Jenkins was a Virginian politician who served two terms in the U.S. Congress and was also elected as a delegate to the first Confederate Congress. He was not particularly adept at military leadership and was average or below average in just about every capacity, except for one, making raids. The man knew how to terrorize civilians, burn buildings, and steal supplies. Jenkinson's brigade consisted of a motley bunch of cavalry, mounted infantry, partisan rangers, and artillery. The last brigade was led by Brigadier General Beverly Robertson. Robertson had once led the brigade now commanded by General Rooney Lee, but at this time he was leading a brigade in northeastern North Carolina. Robertson was a little better than Jenkins in that he did have prior experience as a cavalry officer in the antebellum army, but he was probably the weakest combat commander of them all. One of Stuart's staff officers wrote that Robertson was, quote, an excellent man in camp to train troops, but in the field, in the presence of the enemy, he lost all self-possession and was perfectly unreliable, unquote. There's only one photo that I've ever seen of Robertson, and he looks absolutely frightened in it. I don't want to judge too much off of a photograph, but looking at Robertson doesn't exactly give you much confidence in his abilities to lead. Additionally, Robertson only brought two regiments that had literally just been trained, making this their first campaign. Now, there was one more brigade of cavalry that would join the Army of Northern Virginia, but because they were unable to arrive in time, they were considered an independent command and not part of Stuart's division. It was another brigade from the Valley that was led by Brigadier General John Imboden. Imboden was another Virginia politician turned cavalry officer. He'd worked well with Grumble Jones for the last few months, making raids and such. His role in the Gettysburg campaign was largely peripheral, so he'll only come up briefly maybe once or twice for the rest of the series. Okay, so let's talk about the Federal Cavalry. The Cavalry of the Army of the Potomac had struggled early in the war to keep up with their rebel foes. We already talked about why horse culture was so important to the superiority of Southern horsemen. For Northerners, their substandardness came from the inverse of those reasons. Northerners, by and large, weren't descended from aristocratic cavalier stock. 
Life above the Mason-Dixon line was predominantly rural as it was below, but there were more major cities and towns, and infrastructure was much more developed in the north. There were more rail lines, and those that existed were usually of better quality. Macadamized roads, which were roads made from crushed stone that made the roads much more smoother than ones made from dirt, were far more common in the north. Much of the U.S. Army in the antebellum era had consisted of cavalry units, or dragoons, that served at outposts on the frontier, mostly fighting against various indigenous groups. Many cavalry officers in the 1850s had been Southerners who sided with the Confederacy, and that left a real dearth of leadership within the Federal Cavalry. The advantages that the Union forces held over the Rebels had to do with materiel. The industrial capacity of the North was able to provide the Yankee troopers with better equipment. Whereas the Confederates carried a number of different weapons into battle, Federal horsemen carried better and more uniform firearms. The most common weapon type was the carbine, and the most popular model were the Sharps model 1859 and 1863. The barrel of the carbine was shorter than a rifled musket, so it had a slightly shorter range, but it did have a few advantages. It was a breech-loading weapon, as opposed to the muzzle-loading musket. That combined with the unique falling block action and the primer feed allowed it for it to be loaded and fired faster than a rifled musket and easier to fire while in horseback. The loading system also minimized the amount of black powder resin that would collect inside the barrel, which would allow the soldier to fire more shots before the weapon became foul and needed to be cleaned or repaired. One popular myth from the Civil War was that the cavalry of that era commonly carried repeating rifles with lever actions. You know, the kind of gun that John Wayne would carry in a movie. The Rifleman! These weapons did exist during the war, and they were used to some degree, but the army made the decision early on to stick with the single-shot carbine as the primary weapon. In hindsight, it proved to be a mistake because the industrial capabilities of the northern weapons manufacturers probably could have produced enough to equip the entire cavalry force. When entire units like Colonel John T. Wilder's Lightning Brigade was equipped with the Spencer repeating rifle, it turned it into a nearly unstoppable force. They easily could drive away enemy cavalry and infantry with their vast advantage and rate of fire. It is possible that a few troopers carried repeating rifles during the Gettysburg Campaign, but this probably represents 5% or less of the soldiers in the Cavalry Corps. Federal Cavalry also carried pistols and sabers, but unlike the Rebels, preferred to fight on foot with their carbines. Cavalry charges were generally discouraged by the majority of officers due to the long range of the rifled musket, though there were a few European-born cavalry commanders who were appalled by this way of thinking. The other big advantage that they had was in the number of horses available. Union troopers were provided horses by the army, and if it was killed in any way, it was replaced at the government's expense. There were no long leaves of absence to find another mount. In the way that the manpower pool in the north was larger, the same was true about the horsepower pool. Two years of hard fighting and riding had really hurt the Confederate cavalry. The Federals were also able to provide more food for their horses, which gave them more energy and stamina. Now, although the Federal cavalry struggled early in the war, they were beginning to make some positive strides. The disparity between the two sides was beginning to shrink. One such example of this was the Battle of Kelly's Ford in March of 1863, where a division of Federal cavalry fought a brigade of Confederate cavalry to a draw. Hooker's reorganization of the cavalry into an independent corps had proven to be very effective, but they still needed a capable general to match Stuart's skill. It seemed that Brigadier General George Stoneman was not that man. 
On the last episode, I talked about how General Hooker removed him from command for medical reasons, but it really was because he feared that Stoneman was plotting against him. As his replacement, he chose the 38-year-old D.C. native Brigadier General Alfred Pleasanton. He was the son of Stephen Pleasanton, a longtime Washington bureaucrat that worked as the fifth auditor for the Treasury Department. During the War of 1812, Pleasanton saved several founding documents, including the original copies of both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution from British forces that sacked the capital. Because of his father's political connections, he was accepted into the U.S. Military Academy, where he graduated in 1844 and later was commissioned as a lieutenant in the 1st U.S. Dragoons. He fought with the 1st Dragoons in Mexico, where he received brevet promotions for his various actions there. After the Mexican War, he mostly did frontier duty until 1861. Years had passed since his father's death, and Pleasanton initially struggled to receive a commission in the U.S. Volunteers, though he finally was promoted to Brigadier General in the summer of 1862. Despite having done barely anything of note in the first few months during the war, he was promoted in early September to Division Command. He led the division from the Maryland Campaign until the Battle of Chancellorsville, and at that time he was the most senior of the cavalry division commanders. And he seemed like he had a knack for moving up the ranks. Barely a year into the war, and he'd risen from the rank of major in the regular army to brigadier general and corps commander. It helped that one of his former brigade commanders and a close friend, John Franklin Farnsworth, was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives as a Republican. I've kind of hinted at this a couple of times, but it was really necessary for Civil War officers to have some sort of political patron if they expected to rise in the ranks. At this time, your personal connections were far more important than your personal skill or intelligence. Pleasanton was a decent commander and strategist, but his negative qualities seemed to outweigh most of the positives. For one, Pleasanton was actually quite similar to Stuart in terms of style and appearance. He was known to be a bit of a fancy boy like the Beau Sabur. A fellow officer referred to him, quote, as a fine little dandy, unquote. No, he's very fancy. Want me, love me, shower me with kisses. He even had a similar nickname, the Knight of Romance. But unlike Stuart, Pleasanton was not known to be a particularly good combat leader and usually avoided the front. He was more of an administrator, a desk jockey who just fancied himself as a cavalier. Making up for Pleasanton's shortcomings were a solid group of subordinate officers. The first division of the Cavalry Corps was led by Brigadier General John Buford Jr. Buford was thought by some to be the best cavalry officer in the Army of the Potomac. He was a Kentuckian and a West Point graduate of the class of 1848, making him a year too late to have fought in the Mexican War. Like many other cavalry officers in the pre-war army, he served in Kansas and did a lot of frontier Indian fighting. Also like Pleasanton, he missed much of the early fighting of the Civil War. He worked a desk job until Major General John Pope plucked him out of Washington and gave him command of a cavalry brigade. It didn't last long, and once the Federal Army of Virginia was combined with the Army of the Potomac, he was relegated to a staff role but Hooker brought him back as a division commander when he reorganized the cavalry. He might have been promoted to corps command after Chancellorsville, but Pleasanton's promotion to brigadier general predated Buford by just a few days, and Hooker adhered to seniority. In June, he had three brigades under his command that were led by Colonel Benjamin Davis, Colonel Thomas Devon, and Major Charles Whiting. Whiting's reserve brigade included four regular army regiments. The second division was led by Alfred Napoleon Alexander Dufay. 
What a name. Dufay was a French-born military officer whose background is a bit murky, but he had at least earned the rank of second lieutenant in the French Dragoons. He fought in the Crimean War at the Battle of Balaclava, the clash made famous by the poem The Charge of the Light Brigade. He essentially deserted the army in 1859 and immigrated to the United States where he married into a wealthy New York family. He volunteered to fight for the Union in 1861 and was commissioned as a captain. He was known to have a prickly personality and eschewed many of his superior officers. In 1861, he challenged General Fitzjohn Porter to a duel, which Porter declined. The practice of dueling was losing popularity in the latter half of the 19th century, but there were several notable incidents of the war in which high-ranking officers were killed over petty disputes. He was given command of a Rhode Island cavalry regiment, which he led from 1862 until the Battle of Chancellorsville. Having been trained as a cavalry officer in a European army, Dufay was dismayed by the American cavalry doctrine of dragoon-style dismounted fighting. He drilled his troopers in the art of the cavalry charge, and successfully led one at the Battle of Kelly's Ford. During the reorganization of the cavalry following Chancellorsville, he skipped over brigade command and was promoted directly to command of the 2nd Division of the Cavalry Corps. He had two brigades. One was led by Colonel Luigi Palma di Sassnola, who was an Italian-born soldier of fortune, having served in the failed First Italian War of Independence and then as an officer in the British Army during the Crimean War. After the American Civil War, he led an archaeological expedition in Cyprus, which recovered tens of thousands of ancient artifacts. The antiquities were shipped to the U.S. and eventually were bought by the expanding Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and it became a major part of the collection. Much of it remains there today. He also served as the Met's first director for 25 years. The other brigade was led by Colonel John I. Gregg, a West Pointer and Mexican War veteran. He was also the cousin of the 3rd Division commander, Brigadier General David McMurtry Gregg. Speaking of which... The last division was led by the aforementioned General David Gregg, who at the time was 28 years old and a cousin of then-Pennsylvania Governor Andrew Curtin and a grandson of a former Pennsylvania Congressman, Andrew Gregg. Based on his political connections, he had no trouble securing an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy and graduated with the class of 1855. He served with the 2nd U.S. Dragoons and the pre-war army. In 1861, he contracted typhoid fever and nearly died when the hospital he was convalescing in caught on fire but he recovered and in 1862 was promoted to command of the 8th Pennsylvania Cavalry Regiment, which he led until his promotion to brigade command in the late fall of 1862. Despite his cavalry seeing little action after the Peninsula Campaign, he was promoted again to division command after Hooker reorganized the cavalry in 1863. His two brigades were led by Colonels Hugh Judson Kilpatrick and Percy Wyndham. Kilpatrick was only 27 years old and was part of the West Point class of 1861, which graduated in May, just weeks after the war started. He began the war as an artillery officer, but was transferred to the infantry and had the distinction of being the first Union officer that was wounded in combat at the Battle of Big Bethel. Eventually, he was promoted to command of a cavalry regiment at the end of the first year of the war. He continued to rise in rank largely because of his bold and aggressive nature, which impressed some of his superior officers, but disdained him to his troopers. Kilpatrick's willingness to order seemingly hopeless cavalry charges garnered him the nickname Kill Cavalry. The other brigade commander, Percy Wyndham, was a British-born soldier of fortune. Though some of the claims of his early life were challenged, he asserted that he was the son of a British officer who served as the aide-de-camp to the Duke of Wellington. Wyndham served in four European militaries before he arrived in America. The French Navy, the British Army, the Austro-Hungarian Army, and Giuseppe Garibaldi's Sardinian Army. He left for the United States in 1862, and despite his questionable origins, he convinced the Americans that he was qualified to lead a cavalry regiment. 
He was given command of a brigade during the reorganization of early 1863. Back in mid-May, General Lee had ordered General Stewart and his cavalry division to concentrate around Culpeper Courthouse, Virginia. The brigades of Hampton and the two Lees arrived first, followed by General Robertson's North Carolina Brigade and Grumble Jones. Late in the month, Stewart, always looking to put on a show, held a review in which his troopers marched on horseback and performed drills for onlooking citizens. He was so enthralled with the positive reception that he decided to hold another grand review, this time even bigger and more bombastic. Kramer says you'll need it because you're an entertainer and you're desperate for attention. That's true. <laughs> Invitations were sent out to the southern aristocrats of the Virginia Piedmont and Tidewater, and guests included many wealthy Richmonders, including George Wythe Randolph, a former Confederate Secretary of War and a current Virginia State Senator. Notably absent was General Lee, who delayed his journey to Culpeper when the Federals made that reconnaissance in force near Fredericksburg, much to Stewart's disappointment. The review impressed the spectators. A two-mile-long column featured almost all of Stewart's command, five brigades of cavalry and four batteries of horse artillery. The highlight of the event was a mock battle fought between the various brigades. The horse artillery fired blank rounds as the troopers made faux-dramatic charges and choreographed swordplay. It was kind of like a 19th century WWE match. But Lee's absence really annoyed Stewart. Undeterred, he planned a third grand review for June 8th, which was the third event in less than a month. Lee was present for this review, but it was far less spectacular than the last one. Lee didn't want the cavalry to wear itself out performing pointless exercises, so there was no mock battle or hard riding. Still, the commanding general was impressed with the performance. Less impressed, though, were the infantrymen that were also present for the review. Soldiers from Hood's division of Longstreet's Corps jeered at the horsemen, yelling insults and making jokes. A popular joke of the Civil War era was the phrase, Here is your mule, which came from a story early in the war involving a sutler in a Confederate camp. Sutlers were merchants that were given permission to follow the armies of both sides and peddle goods, usually at exorbitant prices. Anyway, the story went that the soldiers pranked the sutler by hiding his mule, and when he went looking for it, different men would shout, Here is your mule! It became a popular meme of the time, and it inspired multiple songs that were very popular. And if you read any like, kind of Civil War memoir or book about the cavalry, especially focusing on the southern side, you'll see Here is Your Mule used quite frequently. It kind of reminds me of when I was in ninth grade and the movie Talladega Nights came out, and then every dude quoted that movie for the next three years. Here is Your Mule is basically just like the 19th century version of I'm too drunk to taste this chicken. After the ceremonies, Lee retired to his new headquarters at Culpeper Courthouse, and Stewart moved to Brandy Station, a depot on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad a few miles east of Culpeper. He made his headquarters on Fleetwood Heights, due north of the station. He placed his brigades near the various crossings of the Rappahannock and Hazel Rivers. General Fitzhugh Lee was temporarily out of command, as he was suffering from inflammatory rheumatism. The interim brigade commander was Colonel Thomas Munford. Munford was sent a few miles north with the brigade and bivouacked near one of the crossings on the Hazel River. Rooney Lee was also camped near the Hazel River, but closer to Stewart's headquarters. Grumble Jones's brigade was bivouacked in dense woods near St. James Church and placed a picket line near Beverly's Ford, one of the crossings on the Rappahannock. Pickets were basically the advance guard that would fan out in a skirmish line and give warning to an approaching enemy force and potentially slow them down. Sometimes pickets deployed by the cavalry were referred to as vedettes. General Robertson's two regiments of Green North Carolina Cavalry covered Norman's, Wheatley's, and Kelly's fords along the Rappahannock. 
To Robertson's right was the last of the Rebel cavalry, General Hampton's brigade, which also deployed a long line of vedettes that covered Kelly's Ford all the way down to another Rappahannock tributary called Mountain Run. Stewart's five batteries of horse artillery were mostly concentrated near St. James Church. The next day, he intended to cross the river with his division and scout on the north side for the Federal cavalry. Speaking of which, what's going on with those fellas? Pleasanton's cavalry had been aware of Stuart's presence in the vicinity of Culpeper Courthouse for several weeks at this point, but their exact size and location were unknown. There was a wide belief that Stuart's command had been enlarged. A New York Times report said he'd gathered, quote, the largest body of cavalry that the enemy has ever got together, unquote. Pleasanton was convinced that Stuart was receiving reinforcements to launch a raid somewhere around the right wing of the Federal Army. Perhaps they drive on Washington, or just try to cut off Hooker's line of communications. Major General Robert Milroy, commander of the Federal Garrison at Winchester, Virginia, reported to Hooker that his scouts believed Lee was going to cross the Rappahannock and threaten his right flank. Major General Julius Stahel, a Hungarian-born cavalry division commander stationed in Washington, said that his spies, which had infiltrated Confederate lines, learned of the May 15th Richmond Conference and believed the Army of Northern Virginia would soon move north. All of this information seemed to overwhelm Hooker, but he finally began to act. On June 7th, he ordered Pleasanton's forces to concentrate south of Bealton, Virginia, which was about 15 miles northeast of Culpeper. Because the size of Stuart's force was indeterminate, Pleasanton asked Hooker for infantry support. Hooker acquiesced, and he received two brigades of infantry from the 5th Corps. Hooker and Pleasanton seemed to not have been on the same page about what the strategy of the operation should be. Hooker wanted Pleasanton to cross the Rappahannock, locate Stewart's force, and crush it so it would be unable to make their planned raid, whereas Pleasanton was under the impression that his main objective was to perform a reconnaissance in force to find the location and strength of the rebel cavalry. Regardless, Pleasanton's corps and two brigades of infantry arrived at their destination about a half mile from the Rappahannock fords at 11 p.m. on the night of June 8th, a few hours after Stuart's Grand Review had finished. The Federal troopers were allowed a few hours of rest before the operation the next day. The plan was to split the cavalry into two wings. The left wing would be led by General Gregg, and it included his own division, Dufay's division, a brigade of infantry under Brigadier General David A. Russell, and three batteries of horse artillery. The right wing would be led by General John Buford, and it included his division, Brigadier General Adelbert Ames's infantry brigade, and three batteries of horse artillery. Each wing would cross at a different point along the river. Buford's wing would go across Beverly's Ford, and Gregg's wing would cross at Kelly's Ford. From there, they would reconnect at Brandy Station, and then ride toward Culpeper Courthouse where they would drive off Stewart's cavalry. The plan was simple enough, but could not be executed as Pleasanton envisioned it because unbeknownst to him, the rebel horsemen were now concentrated between Brandy Station and the river. He was also under the mistaken impression that no Confederate infantry were within marching distance, but Ewell's whole corps and two-thirds of Longstreet's corps were within ten miles of the station. Nevertheless, the Federals had a slight advantage in terms of troop strength. With the addition of the two brigades of infantry, Pleasanton had at hand about 11,000 men, compared to Stuart's 9,500, which were also spread out over a pretty wide swath of land. Alright folks, that's where I'm going to leave off for today. Next week we're going to pick up basically where we left off and talk about the Battle of Brandy Station. Thanks for listening. My name is Joe Barton. This has been, excuse me, History. Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body.
body lies a mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave.